Although I was able to get to eight hours of sleep a night, I was still exhausted. And, you know, that's a pretty desperate situation. Welcome to Radio Davos. This week we're looking at a challenge we all face. How can we get enough rest? Just flopping down on the sofa isn't enough, according to this expert, who has identified seven different types of rest that we all need. In any moment that you leave feeling refreshed, restored, rejuvenated, evaluate what caused that. What got poured back into you? And if your mobile phone is keeping you awake at night, we have some tips to help. Doom scrolling is endlessly looking at news and your social media feeds, consuming and reading bad news. Radio Davos is the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomeroy and with a look at the psychology of rest and how to manage the 24-7 onslaught of social media. There is like a lot of bad news out there. It just seems like never ending. This is Radio Davos. If you're like me, you need your eight hours of sleep a night. But what if even with that, you're still exhausted? That was the case for Sandra Dalton-Smith, who was so frustrated that she began to research whether sleep itself wasn't enough. Were there, in fact, other types of rest that we all need? We'll be hearing her fascinating findings in the second half of this episode. First, though, does this scenario sound familiar? It's past midnight, you know you should be asleep, but you're on your phone down a social media rabbit hole reading bad news and you can't find a way out. If this is what you're doing, you're doom scrolling, compulsively scrolling through content on social media that's depressing or worrying. And that word became one of the Oxford Dictionary's words of the year for 2020, as the pandemic saw people turning to the internet for information and answers, in theory to allay their fears, but in fact just confirming them. My colleague Kate Whiting spoke to an expert on the matter, Ariane Ling, a psychologist at NYU Longone Health, and asked her, what is doom scrolling? Doom scrolling is used to describe kind of endlessly looking at news and um, your social media feeds, consuming and reading bad news. And why do we do it? I, I think that there are several reasons. One is that I think human beings are kind of hardwired to learn and to want to know what's going on. Um, it's how we've survived, right? Um, and very similarly to how people sort of slow down on the side of the road when they see an accident, right? We're, we're curious. And the current age right now, there is uh, a lot of bad news out there and there's a lot of things to be kind of like slowing down to, to read and review. Secondly, there is, like I said, like a lot of bad news out there. There's been the pandemic and people have been following very closely um, the kind of like twists and turns and, and different strains and all these things. But then also a lot of the social unrest um, and certainly the sociopolitical climate that has been really stressful. It just seems like it's like never ending. Um, so but I think there's that piece, too, like of prevalence of, of, of bad news. Um And I I think another part here is that, you know, most people are sort of scrolling on their phones and our phones are now designed to really um, want us to pay attention to them. So like headlines and the way that social media is sculpted and kind of tailored for what we want to focus on and what we're, we're interested in, we get kind of continually fed these things. So I think doom scrolling, it's part of how humans are naturally, but then I think also the environment has really exacerbated things. I read in the Forbes article that you had sort of coined the term doom scrolling. And is that is that correct? And I didn't coin this phrase. I think this term 
has a lot of different origins on the interweb from long past, you know, the pandemic. And I think it's been on Twitter and um, many people have discussed uh, James Rose. So I, I don't, I cannot take credit for coining the term. It's so much. But it, is it something that you've been aware of in your work for a while predating the pandemic? Yeah, definitely with patients um, that have presented with depression and anxiety, particularly, um, you know, we talk a lot about like confirmation bias. So this idea that we focus and tend to give more weight and focus on details in our environment that really confirm our own beliefs, especially if you're struggling with depression or like the world is all bad, you know, we're going to tend to focus more on articles or again, things in our environment that validate that belief. Yeah, because one of my questions is around sort of, it's sort of like a chicken and egg thing almost, isn't it? So whether people with anxiety and depression are more likely to look for negative news, or if actually the negative news is what's then fueling anxiety, but is it kind of a combination of the two? It's hard to tease apart, right, of what really comes first. But certainly, I think in this like day and age where you could have a lot of different, um, you know, a lot of different things in your environment, like what we attend to, I think, is becoming a harder and harder skill for for many of us. And so um, I really focus on the things that we can work on in, in at least the therapy space and change, which is what what how much weight are we giving certain aspects of life or certain thoughts in terms of the impact on people's mental health? Um can you sort of talk to, you know, what some of the things you've seen in patients are? Like, how bad does it get? And how big an issue do you think it is? In my work, at least with patients, I've seen how kind of this cycle of having really struggling and having challenges in terms of mental health and then kind of going out into the environment and then having all those things confirmed and, and, and validated. That cycle also often leads to a lot of feelings of helplessness and hopelessness. I think certainly in the pandemic, there's also been not so easy to describe, but just this like collective experience of loss. So even if you didn't know someone in particular who got ill or who passed away, there's still this constant that the waves of of hearing about loss that has an impact on someone in, in terms of their humanity. Again, patients that have struggled with depression and anxiety, but if they also have a co-occurring um, condition like substance use or um, uh, trauma and PTSD, then those things really get like compounded and exacerbated. With COVID sort of meaning that there have been these periods of, you know, measures brought in, including lockdown, um, you know, quite often people will be self-isolating, might be by themselves. And I guess that is also conducive to then exacerbating the issue. Um, is that what you found? Certainly, right. I think as a result of COVID and lockdown and all these things, our routines really thwarted um, and the ways that we access information differently, right? It's not just like our phones, but it might be a conversation with a friend or a colleague or a coworker, right? The routine of maybe, you know, taking a break from work and going to get a glass of water, we replace that with like being on our phones. You know, the isolation piece here and just having our phones be constantly with us as, as this companion of of doom um, can be really convenient and then also exacerbating the perpetual cycle. And what on a chemical level, I guess, is happening when we are looking through our phones? Is it that 
is there a sort of dopamine effect going on where, you know, sort of we're now so conditioned to looking for the notifications coming in on social media, but is there a similar sort of thing when we're looking at bad news stories and we're waiting for the next bad news story? Yeah, it's almost like this reward system of, oh, okay, if I'm thinking that the world is very dangerous, right? I'm again, that learning part of us, that part that needs to survive is going to be looking out for data that confirms that. And so it's this like, you know, this feedback loop of I'm worried. Oh, I, there's a lot of facts that are out there that, um, kind of validate why I'm worried. And then we continue to keep like, um, searching for that. I think human beings are also hardwired in terms of like this learning experience and emotions, what we use to learn about the world, right? Our emotions are essentially like, like I would say like our GPS for the world. Like how can I determine whether or not this thing is, is um, threatening to me? So stories that really are having emotional impact, we learn from and we remember and we, you know, connect to um, and stay with us. Are there certain age groups or, you know, types of people who are more prone to doom scrolling that you have seen? I work primarily with adults, so I can't really speak to adolescents um, or younger children. I I do imagine that the younger population is more vulnerable, obviously, right? Because they're a little bit more agile with their phones. Their their phone, I think there's like a different relationship with social media. What can people do really and what sort of advice do you give? One of the questions that I always ask patients is, if you weren't using your phone, what would you be doing? And it sort of opens up this really, this space of curiosity, this space of ability. Um, and so people, once they were kind of aware of how much time they were spending on their phones, that's really the first step, kind of like awareness. And then maybe some curiosity of like, what could I be doing? Right? Could I be reading? And, you know, we kind of seen like also on social media, like the sourdough baking and uh, working out and like learning how to cook. It's important to stay informed, right? It's important to know what's happening in the world. And so one of the other recommendations um, that I give folks is really if, if similar to like checking email, like we can't constantly be on, right? We can't constantly be checking email. If you want to be uh, reading the news and engaging the news in this way or with social media, then allow your time, like yourself some time, like permission to be like from this time to this time. So a half an hour in the morning, maybe sometime during the day. And then at night, you can decide whether or not this is helpful because doom scrolling into the night, I think, is also another place where people are vulnerable. They're tired. They want to unwind. And then this like cycle revs up again at night. I wondered if you'd seen any other sort of behaviours. I mean, you mentioned languishing. Um, I'm quite interested in this idea of revenge bedtime procrastination, which I think is something that came out of China originally. And I certainly know I'm guilty of it, that sort of feel I haven't had enough me time during the day. And so I'm staying up a bit later than I would normally. Do you see other sort of behaviours coming out of the pandemic like that? In my practice, it's a lot of how it interferes with sleep. Um, So it's almost... Like, uh, I think the term is really interesting, but I think in, in practice, I use more of this like kind of self-sabotaging behavior and how it's serving you and, you know, how is it helpful and how is it not helpful and, and looking at, yeah, there's, there is this need to unwind and we've maybe created a routine or a culture where we unwind by doom scrolling. And if that's set intentionally, like I'm going to do this and then I'm going to go to bed, right? Like behaviorally, we would work on sleepy signs like when your body is saying hey i'm tired can we listen to that and can we turn off the phone um and other behavioral things like keeping your phone out of the bedroom like the the normal sort of like limitations on screen time and 
um, and, and all that. But um, it's more of just uh, what I've seen in terms of like disrupting sleep and then how that is, has its own cycle of then um, not being able to regulate mood because you're tired and grouchy um, and then how it kind of wreaks havoc on all these other systems like your circadian rhythm in general. In terms of sleep hygiene then, are there other sort of things that you advise the patients that you see? We do a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. So um, first, like the sleep hygiene part is um, kind of like your normal tips of, you know, uh, protecting your bed for sleep and for sex, right? Um, and so we, we see a lot of people just on their phones in bed, just like snuggled up, um, how that can really be really disruptive to your sleep schedule, to intimacy, you know, with your family and all these things. So, um, we, like, we first kind of do a lot of that. And if you do wake up in the middle of the night and you have like the, the urge to doom scroll, can we, or, you know, to urge to look at your phone in general, can you replace that with a book that's, uh, you know, kind of like a lower, in terms of getting your emotional system activated, right? Um, another thing is noticing like when we are feeling really anxious or we're having depressive thoughts, you know, you might wake up and um, be kind of like riddled with these thoughts. And so finding a way to either write them down or start challenging some of these thoughts could be a more productive way um, than again, going to your phone and then reading a whole bunch of really upsetting news. Um, so yeah, there's like the sleep hygiene part and then the actual treatment part, like in terms of like regulating a schedule. So waking up at the same time every single day, even on the weekends, no matter how late you fell asleep or how, how many naps you took. And we actually like look at sleep productivity and like sleep diaries to just get like an optimal time of when, um, when you should be sleeping and when you should be waking. Um, and that sleep is a habit, right? It's not something that like comes naturally and we can work on it and it's a skill. And do you see a huge difference when people then do get into good sleep habits? Sleep is so important. Uh, sleep is so important just for, again, like I said, all these ways in which we regulate our mood and how, um, like you, like your example is a beautiful one of like at the end of the day, we're tired, right? So it's almost this like very easy, um, like it's very easy to fall into doom scrolling, but if we're a little bit more alert and attuned to ourselves, we, we stand a better chance at being able to say, okay, wait, I'm like doom scrolling again. Let me put this down and, and refocus my, my energy on something that's meaningful, that's sort of value driven and aligned with, you know, how I want to be living my life. If there are just a couple of things that people could do every day to look after their well-being and mental health, what, what would they be? I would suggest moving your body in one way. So, you know, the kind of sedentary life, especially if you're on phone or your computer a lot of finding some way to move your body, um, and whether that's like a, a practice of just like very simple yoga or breathing or going out for a walk or, you know, something more extensive, I would say just don't stay in the same place for the entire day. I think we've talked about the importance of sleep and, and trying to protect sleep. And um, I think when we like limit ourselves and we say like, I'm not going to doom scroll or I'm not going to look at social media, those things become more enticing. And so just allowing yourself um, the space and the time to engage in these things because it's, it's helpful and it kind of keeps us informed while also balancing and being aware of, again, how much time it's taking. And yeah, if it's kind of getting in the way of, again, like value congruent behaviors, like spending time with your family or going for a walk, 
um, then you can adjust. And, and, it, and it takes just very small things. We don't have to be doing very big activities, right? It just takes something very small. Dr. Ariane Ling was talking to Kate Whiting. You're listening to Radio Davos. We'll be right back after this. George Oliver is the CEO and chairman of Johnson Controls, a provider of smart building technology with more than 100,000 staffers worldwide. He talked to Meet the Leader about the role critical infrastructure played in the pandemic as his company shifted nearly overnight to help construct temporary hospitals and isolation rooms. Especially in the last year, it has been everything we do on steroids. He also explained how buildings took on new importance during the pandemic as more people realized that building technologies can help tackle an even bigger problem, the climate. The pandemic, it has accelerated or has repositioned buildings and infrastructure in a much more strategic way. He'll share how habits and leadership rhythms are instrumental in complex challenges and the role that routine plays in his own life. Leadership needs to have kind of a rhythm which drives innovation and then ultimately performance. I'm your host, Linda Lucina. Learn about all this and more on the next Meet the Leader. Welcome back to Radio Davos and our look at psychology. In part one, we heard about doom scrolling and how it might be keeping us awake at night. But what if you sleep soundly but are still exhausted? Sleep, it turns out, is not the only type of rest that our bodies and brains require. Dr. Sandra Dalton-Smith wrote a book called Sacred Rest, Discover Your Life, Renew Your Energy, Restore Your Sanity, which describes the seven types of rest that she says we all need. My colleague Anna Bruce Lockhart asked her how she got interested in the issue of rest in the first place. Well, I burned out. That's the simple answer. And um, as a physician, I initially was thinking, okay, I'm just exhausted, so I need to get more sleep. And so I started there. I started with trying to get the mandatory seven, eight, nine hours of sleep that's recommended. And although I was able to accomplish that, I was able to get to eight hours of sleep a night, I was still exhausted. And, you know, that's a pretty desperate situation when you feel like that's the solution and that solution isn't working. And that's what really made me think there has to be other areas of me that are fatigued that I'm not incorporating recovery in just sleeping. And so that's what kind of took me on a search to dive into what those other areas that can be exhausted in my life are. So you were a doctor, you were working in a hospital at the time? Hospital and uh, office. I am traditional internal medicine, so I actually do both. So I'm the doctor that sees you in the office and then follows you to the hospital if you get admitted, sees you in the emergency room, the ICU. I live in a fairly small town, so I'm traditional internal medicine. I do it all. So clearly you had quite a lot of patients. You had a lot of pressure going on in your life. You're working long hours. And to remedy that, you were just sleeping a bit more, but it wasn't helping. What was the first alternative kind of rest that you started to explore? Well, I started to look at my day and I started to evaluate what areas in my day am I using energy? Because that for me, as as someone who's kind of scientifically minded, my thought was energy in, energy out. So same process we use with everything else when we're talking about depletion. So I started to think about where are the places in my life that I'm using energy, but I'm not being very intentional about pouring back into those places. And so for me, the ones that initially popped up as far as the types of rest um, specifically had to do with emotional rest and social rest, because I felt like those were the areas that I had completely obliterated from my thought process as far as places that I could become fatigued. 
But as you can imagine, when you're at the bedside of a patient who's um, dying from a cancer or seeing a patient in an ER where they just had a stroke or, or a heart attack, those are very emotionally labile situations. There's a lot of emotional energy that goes into that. And there's a lot of social energy because you are maintaining a level of professionalism, even if those patients are people that you consider almost like family. You know, as the type of physician I am in a smaller town, a lot of these people I've treated for 15, 20 years. And so I don't just treat them as their physician. I know them. I know their grandkids, their dog's name. You know, they're like family members. And so I didn't realize how much emotional and social energy I poured out in a day. And I had no system in place of pouring back into myself in either of those areas. So how did you start to do that? So obviously you started to recognize that this was taking a toll on your your mental energy, your emotional energy. How did you start to remedy that? Well, for myself, the very first thing was to start defining what is emotional rest? What is social rest? Because those are terms that are not you know, really well defined, as well as the other types of rest. You know, as I worked through this process with the different areas of within myself that needed rest, I was also looking at my own patients, you know, that are coming in saying, I'm tired. And as a physician, you run the battery of tests and everything's normal. I started asking them very similar questions. Where are you pouring out energy in your day? And as I'm compiling this information, I'm seeing these consistent areas that popped up that were very universal, regardless of if someone was a janitor or a judge, or if they were a teacher or a homeschool mom teaching. You know, it, there was this universal pattern of, of, kind of these consistent areas that people were getting fatigued. And that's where the seven came from. And so after I had these kind of seven things laid out, I started looking at just defining each of them and kind of what was universal between people. So with emotional, what seemed to be universal was this ability just to be very authentic and to be able to share your truth and what you're feeling and what's going on without having to kind of put makeup on it or to, to make it easier for other people to digest. And that's what I was doing all day. I was having to keep my emotions in check or keep them so that they were easier for other people. And I needed an outlet. I needed time, you know, not necessarily every single day, but I needed time in my life where I was allowing myself to have that level of emotional rest. And, you know, that's different for every person. Some people can do that with a spouse or a girlfriend. Other people do it with a therapist or a counselor or a priest, you know, so where you get the emotional rest is really your option. But everybody needs someone that they feel like they can just be truthful about what's going on in their in their kind of emotional health area. That's really interesting. I hope this isn't too polarizing, but I, I feel like a lot of the women I know need a lot of emotional rest because I feel like they do a lot of that kind of care when they're dealing with other people and they're always worrying about what people think. And perhaps that's why it's quite so satisfying for women to get together and have a glass of wine and, and, and vent. It's interesting you say that because emotional and social rest go very closely together. So emotional rest is the ability to, to share those feelings, to be authentic, to be vulnerable. Social rest are the people you do that with. So social rest is the energy we experience when we are around life-giving people. people 
people that are not negatively pulling from our social energy. And, you know, the thing is, most of the people that are negatively pulling from our social energy are the people we love the most. It's our kids. They're socially pulling from us. It's our coworkers. It's our clients. It's our patients in my, in my area. So these are the people that are needing you, that are requiring things from you and drawing from you socially. Then you have to think about who are the people who don't need anything from me. I just enjoy being around them and they just enjoy being around me. And so we fill each other up with our presence. And so they go very closely together, but they're not the same thing because some people get that social rest and they might be introverts. They don't necessarily enjoy the verbalization part of it, but they like the community of being around other people that are pouring in. So that's of the seven types of rest that you have identified. I think we've covered emotional rest, social rest, I think we've covered physical rest too, isn't it? Because that's what you initially thought would be the solution, just just sleeping more. Physical has actually two different components. It has the passive, which are sleeping and napping. But, you know, physical also has an active component that I think we sometimes omit, which is the, the rest we get with restorative activity. So this is where things like yoga and stretching and foam rolling and massage therapy and even leisure walks have a benefit. They are helping your body kind of restore the circulation. They're helping with lymphatic drainage. They're helping with your muscle integrity so that your muscles aren't all tight and tense and they're more flexible and loose. So I think we sometimes don't um, appreciate kind of all the components of physical rest because sleeping does help with some of that. You know, inertia <laughs> does help the body to some degree, but um, I like to, my husband's an ultra marathon runner and I like to tag along to do half marathons. He does hundred milers. I do 13. You, you do what you can, right? But every time I do one of those 13 milers, inertia actually hurts worse than keeping the body loose. And so you have to understand that just stopping isn't necessarily all that's incorporated in physical rest, because that's what sleeping and napping are. You're stopping. You know, you wake up the next day after one of those runs, everything hurts. You walk a little bit, you roll, you stretch, you, you do some massage therapy, you feel better because you actually have improved through active physical rest. Would it be passive or active rest than watching Netflix on the sofa Eating crisps. Normally what I call that is escapism. So <laughs> you're tired, your life's overwhelming, it's exhausting. So you gotta just escape from it for a minute into the life of someone else on, on Netflix. Now I take, I will say this. There are some people that I know can experience some level of creative rest in watching Netflix and doing things like that. Creative rest is the rest we experience when we allow ourselves to appreciate beauty in whatever form that is, whether that's creative beauty like drama or theater or art or music, or if it's natural beauty, like the mountains or the ocean or the beach. So, you know, there have been times when I'll sit and I'll watch a movie or something and I'll be inspired. I'll have that awe and wonder that comes with creative rest. So there are moments of that. But often what I'm seeing when people veg out in front of the TV, they're not actually being poured into. They're just, they're, it's just kind of this the stale space that they're sitting in and there's no recovery actually coming from it. I am aware that Netflix is taking you off on a bit of a detour from the seven types of rest here, but it's, it's quite interesting, isn't it, given how much time a lot of us, not necessarily just watching Netflix, in that sort of switched off phase, whether it's sitting on a metro or commuting or just sitting watching TV, it's a kind of 
off switch, isn't it? It's a kind of stasis, but it's not particularly creative or useful, seemingly. I think it's important whenever you're thinking about um, rest, if you're thinking, is this activity restful? Try to identify what is being restored, what is being poured back into And honestly, every type of rest that you do, when you do a restorative activity, you will leave it feeling improved in some way. I'll I'll give you an example of how this kind of gets confusing for a lot of people. For example, I'll have people say, and I'll use running as an example again, they'll say, well, I go jogging and, you know, when I get done jogging, I'm sweating, I'm, you know, I'm tired physically, but I feel so much better. What, why is that? And usually these are people who have very mentally taxing jobs. So they have a level of mental rest deficit. And so activities like jogging or anything that allows your mind to really become focused, because when you're jogging or running, you're concentrating on your breathing, you're concentrating on your cadence, you're pinpointing your mental processes down a very narrow pathway, which is a type of mental rest. It's a focusing um, kind of a mindfulness process. And so during that run, physically, they're not resting. But they can be mentally resting because that's one of the few times that their mind kind of quiets down and focus. They may also be experiencing some level of creative rest. If during the run, they are actually appreciating the beauty around them. They see a a red bird fly by and they actually in the moment appreciate it. They're like, wow, that's such a beautiful animal. They may be thinking that they're not necessarily verbalizing it, but they're processing the beauty and and being in the moment, or they're seeing flowers or trees or whatever it may be. So in any moment that you leave feeling refreshed, restored, rejuvenated, evaluate what caused that. What got poured back into you? What got restored? Because that's where you've experienced the rest. Would you advise keeping a sort of mental checklist on a daily basis? Would you say that these are seven vessels that need to be filled each day? Or is it less onerous than that? Can you just kind of keep a monthly tally and, and check in with yourself every few weeks or so just to sort of check to see how you're feeling? You do have to stay some level of self-aware. So for myself, I don't have like a checklist or anything like that. I'm not that organized. What I do do is I wake up every morning and I say, do I feel refreshed? If I wake up in the morning and I'm like, you know what? I don't have the energy for this day. Then something's already depleted. And I need to evaluate what that is or it's just going to keep getting depleted. If you wake up and you're like, yeah, I'm good. Let's start this day. <laughs> then these seven le- levels are at a healthy stage. And so you're constantly throughout your day going to be having ups and downs as you pour out energy and receive energy. The problem is if you're pouring, pouring, pouring out of a bucket that you have not even recognized that you need to be pouring into or don't have a strategy in place on how you're going to pour back into that bucket, that's when you run into a problem. There are a few different types of rest that we haven't covered yet. We've done physical rest, creative rest, emotional rest and social rest. What's missing for me here is we've got mental rest and sensory rest. And then there's also spiritual rest. Right. Spiritual rest. um, There's so many kind of thought processes around what everybody's own spiritual beliefs are. But I think at the core of spiritual rest is really an understanding of this feeling of, of everyone of needing to be belonging to something bigger than themselves, to feel as if they are connecting with others, that they are a part of humanity, that they're pouring back into the world, that their life has meaning and purpose. And so regardless of someone's specific religious beliefs, it's kind of at the core of it, understanding that interconnectedness that we have, and then identifying what that means to you, what that looks like to you. 
And then you mentioned mental rest. Um, mental rest is a huge one for a lot of people because we are so mentally taxed in just about every field that you can go into. There's a lot of mental processing. And so mental rest is being able to clear some of that, that cerebral space to not always feel like your mind is regurgitating information. So someone with a mental rest deficit is that person who can't concentrate. They go into a grocery store with three items and they can't remember but two of them when they get in there because of the lack of ability to concentrate and hold on to information. Or they lay down at night and they are exhausted and they want to go to sleep, but they're thinking about their to-do list for the next day, or they're thinking about the conversation they had with their boss or with an employee or their kids and they're ruminating over all of this stuff. Or they're thinking about this this kind of negative thought process, the self-sabotaging negative, you know, thoughts that they may be having. And they're regurgitating all that information while they're supposed to be sleeping. You know, so it's one of those things that we have to learn how to get our headspace to shut up so that we can actually get some mental peace. And that's what mental rest is. What are some of the uh, more sort of creative and interesting ways that you've uncovered along the ways for, for dealing with that kind of mental overload. One of the the big ones probably for mental rest is the process of kind of disrupting the brain's desire to hold on to the information by releasing it onto something concrete. You know, whenever we are rehearsing information in our brain, it's no different than when you were in grade school and you had to learn those spelling words for that test coming up. What did you do? You kept saying it in your mind over and over and over and over again. And what that tells your brain is, we're going to be called upon to regurgitate this information. So hold on to it at all cost. So whenever you do that, whether that's a negative thought pattern, like whether it's your kids, you know, <laughs> homework list, you're trying to kind of make sure you help them do stuff, whatever that is, if you keep regurgitating it, the brain will hold on to that information throughout the night, even at the expense of you not sleeping. So a very simple strategy is something people call brain dumping. It's just having a notepad, a piece of paper, a post-it note, something where you can jot down whatever that information is. By putting it onto something concrete, the brain now has permission to release it because it no longer is responsible for maintaining the information. It recognizes this information has been secured. Now I can release it for the next bit of information that I may be asked to hold. There's one last type of rest left and it's sensory rest. And I feel like I know what this is. I feel like it's the screens overload, whether we're watching TV in the evening or on our screens all day long or on our phones, or maybe it's the bustle of the office or, or the noise of traffic. Every place that your senses get engaged. And I love that you gave all those examples because that is the problem. We are sensory overloaded throughout our day, whether it's the background noises at your office, whether it's your kids in the background playing and laughing while you're working at home, whether it's the pings coming from your devices because you're getting notifications, whether it's the bright lights from your screens or from your computers or just from the your office space, there's always these sensory inputs. And the reality is we can't just omit sensory inputs because most of our jobs require those sensory inputs. What we can do then is evaluate how they're affecting us because excessive sensory overload tends to lead to behavioral changes. So we see more agitation, we see more rage, we see more irritation. And so if you are someone who noticed you start your day off and you're pretty, you know, easygoing kind of person, but by the end of your day, you're snapping at everybody and you can't understand it, chances are you have a sensory rest deficit that you're developing from your day. So now what you need to do is look at what are some recovery things that I can do in the middle of my busy day to help undo the damage of that. 
So I'm at the end of my day over here in Europe. I'm aware that you're in America. Tonight, I'm going to be focusing on some mental rest and also some sensory rest. You're at the beginning of your day. What kind of uh, rest are you going to be prioritizing? Today is going to be mostly creative because I have a lot of projects going on right now. So that's where I'm pouring out a lot of energy is creatively um, coming up with new ideas and developing new projects. And so I need some time to just kind of enjoy. So I have a two mile walk that I'll go out and hopefully it won't rain here so I can enjoy it outside. Um, and, you know, when I can enjoy it outside, I actually incorporate creative rest through artwork on my computer. So I'll put up beautiful art as the screensavers in between. Um, so whenever my computer goes blank, when I'm sitting there processing and I look over and I see it, I actually get this little burst of creative rest in between there. That sounds glorious. I have one more question, actually. I, I wanted to ask you, because now that the seven different types of rest idea has had time to get pick up with uh, a larger public and you've had time to have feedback, have you had any interesting responses in terms of like, oh, that kind of rest doesn't really exist or, hey, you forgot this kind? Yeah, I haven't actually had anyone come back with that doesn't exist. I think because we did so much research in the beginning with different people <laughs> to see what they resonated with, you know, what was universal among people. I did have someone who was a digestive um expert say, hey, you didn't include digestive rest. And I thought, you know, that's interesting. <laughs> um, not that we tend to have a lot of control necessarily um, or input necessarily over digestive rest. The, the way you rest digestively is by fasting, by not eating. Sandra Dalton-Smith, her book is called Sacred Rest, Recover Your Life, Renew Your Energy, Restore Your Sanity. You can find more of our coverage of mental health across our social media feeds. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, YouTube, and on Twitter using the handle at WEF. Please subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. If you like it, leave us a rating and or a review and find us at wf.ch slash podcast. And join the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, with interviews by Kate Whiting and Anna Bruce Lockhart. Editing was by Jared Johansson and technical support was by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back next week with another episode of Radio Davos. But for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>